There's nothing nobler than to put up with a few inconveniences like snakes and dust for the sake of absolute freedom, Kerouac said. (laughs) And I'm sure on day three of this retreat, you have seen a few snakes and a little dust of your own mind. So, since it is fair game for all of us who endeavor to understand the way things are and to disentangle our minds from the snakes and dust, that's the topic of the talk tonight. A few years ago, Kamala and I went to a leader retreat in southern Washington at a retreat center in the forest where we've been going for many years. And it's a small, simple, uh, rustic, isolated uh, center. And when we go there, we know that it's 10 days of being in the forest, and often there are deer just outside the meditation hall door listening to the talk also. <laughs> and it's just a really exquisite place to practice, to teach and to practice. And we got there, and there were you know, 35 or 40 yogis, a full house. And Friday night, opened the retreat. Saturday we had a day of practice. Sunday we had second day of practice, getting a little difficult. Monday morning rolled around, and at about 5.30 in the morning, just as we were coming to sit, we heard this tremendous racket, unbelievable noise and machinery. And on the property right next to where we were having the retreat. And when I say right next to, it was within 50 feet of the meditation hall. The owner had decided to take the next two weeks to clear-cut his property of all of these old growth trees. And so, you know, when they clear a forest, they do it with these huge diesel-powered machines on on tracks, and they kind of walk up to a tree, they grab it with these big claws, And then they pinch it at the bottom, cut it off, turn it sideways, and feed it to a chipper. And the chipper grinds it all up into little particles that are then sent to Japan and made into particle boards or something like that. And that's what we listened to for 10, well, the remaining eight days of the retreat, from 5.30 in the morning till 3.30 in the afternoon. This was not what anybody expected. The snakes came out. The dust came out. Every form of emotional reactivity, anger, fear, the feeling of disempowerment, uh, disappointment, uh, rage, uh, those are just the easy ones. They were just flooding everyone's mind, as you can imagine. I mean, what, I mean, most of us have an affinity and respect for the forest, or would like to. And when the owner decides to do something like that, and 
it's not just the noise. If it was just the noise, you're just hearing, hearing, and then you could put, when it stopped for lunch or at the end of the day, you could put it aside. But it's all that thinking that goes on about it. Rich was on that retreat. He sat in the front row. Rich is a lawyer. Sat in the front row, spent a whole day drafting a, a cease and desist order. <laughs> why this person should stop doing that because it's disturbing the peace. Lucky I had an interview with him. Talked him out of uh, filing it. Anyway, if some of your expectations of how this retreat would be or how you would be on this retreat or what you would experience on this retreat are not being met, well, that's to be expected. The instructions, as you've heard them over the first couple of days, are extremely simple. And we all know that. Any five-year-old could hear those instructions and understand. Pay attention to the breath. Does anybody not understand that? Really, right? And it is the most difficult thing to do. Does anybody not understand that? I mean, it is, why is that so? Why is it so extraordinarily difficult to do something that is so extraordinarily easy and simple to understand? We've been looking at the answer for all our time here. We have these deeply conditioned habits of mind that have very little to do with here and now. They are so conditioned and so habitual, they run our life and we are, for the most part, unconscious of them. The internal monologue that is yabbering away who I am, what I'm doing, why I'm doing it, and commenting on everyone else. That's... <laughs> Hello? <laughs> We're here on Maui, remember? <laughs> you know, it's like... And we can... We know. We, we're lost in these monologues you know, for minutes, if not longer. This should let us know that we really have undertaken something that is, as Kamala said last night, if something is very difficult to do for the Dharma, then it's worth it. This is really difficult to do, I know. It is the hardest thing I have ever done, is to pay attention and to to, to catch the deep, unconscious conditioning of the mind. This practice to awaken is very demanding because we are attempting 
to make the unconscious conscious. And in that we confront all that we have resisted, denied, feared, indulged in, avoided, pretended, wanted and not gotten, gotten and not wanted. That's, that's the field of play. That's the field of our practice. In order to make our lives conscious, that's what we're working with. The patterns of our personality have been repeated so many times. Everyone knows them. We know them. We even know the habits that are not particularly skillful. Mental habits, physical habits, speaking habits, consistently getting us into trouble, one sort or another. And yet, at times it feels like we are powerless to do anything about them. What this reminds us is to be both patient with our deeply conditioned habits that do not lead to happiness. Understand that they're, that they're really powerful. And so you can even expect them to appear in your mind, in your practice, frequently with a tremendous force. So be patient. Be careful not to judge yourself for them. But it also asks us to recognize that the disentangling of our mind from these identifications, these patterns, takes a tremendous diligence and persistence. And our practice is really finding the balance between acknowledging the way things are and the persistent, diligent application of energy to turn them around. And to find a balance. To not get so indulged in and overwhelmed by the way things are. And to not get caught in such Pollyannish or striving behavior that we are quite out of touch with them. And it's a fine line. It's just a really fine line to not fall on one side or the other. And we do. We fall a lot into indulging, avoiding, striving, pretending that it's not happening. And when we notice that, we make the correction, come back to the middle, try again. It's important to understand what our intention is in being here, what our intention is in, in undertaking the practice.
and to separate that from or to, to distinguish that from the results of practice. Of course we come for many reasons. We come on retreat, we undertake practice for many reasons. Some people just want a vacation, some want to de-stress, vacation, well, <laughs> something like that. Some want to just de-stress, some, are, some want enlightenment, whatever that is, some want to be free, some want to uh, whatever. All those agendas get in the way. Really all we need and the most powerful intention, really, that we can have, the clearest, the, the, the purest, if you will, is to know things as they are. To know things as they are. Because in knowing things as they are, we stop struggling. We stop being in conflict with ourselves, the future, the past, each other. We see this is the way things are. This is the way it is. And when we can deeply immerse ourselves in the way it is, then we, we begin to touch the place of peace. Now, I'm not so naive as to think the way it is is just fine. The way it is is not fine. It's really uh, pretty unbearable at times. It's painful at times. It's, it's disgusting. It's horrible. It's torturous for ourselves, for each other. We do it to ourselves and we do it to each other. I'm not saying it's okay just because we can acknowledge this is the way it is. But it is important as a first step in the practice to be able to clearly see this is the way it is. Only then can we do anything about it to move in a direction towards less suffering and more happiness. That first acknowledgement, this is the way it is, is a key. Because most of our resistance, most of our avoidance, our denial, our fear, the dullness of the mind, the, the confusion of the mind, occurs because we're unable to acknowledge this is the way it is right now. And the forms of avoidance, resistance, denial, are well known, well mapped out in this path of practice, this path of opening. The clarity of our intention to know things as they are, to see the truth, to have the courage to be with them, to, to open to them. Not to have some special spiritual experience. If that's in your agenda, you will suffer. No doubt about it. If you're here to attain something, you will also suffer. As we mentioned in the previous evenings, the practice is really all about letting go, discovering the way things are, letting go of the cause of suffering, disentangling in the mind. And maybe the most difficult 
intention to let go of is to get rid of the difficulties in our life. That is not a worthy or a noble intention in practice. It's a result of practice, I agree, to overcome the difficulties in life. But if that's our goal, if that's what motivates us, we'll suffer. But with the intention to just see things as they are. Let me know this moment as it is. Or let me try to know this as it is. Let me be interested enough to open to it, whether I recognize it or not, whether it's familiar, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. Let me see it. Or maybe, let me have it. Or let me add it. And the only tool we have in this extraordinary journey is our clarity of our intention and the power of our attention. And that's it. That's really all we have. Being clear what we're doing and attending to the task at hand. The Buddha's instruction in following this path of opening, awakening, disentangling is really profound. It's simple, but it's profound in its consequences. Because the Buddha really wasn't pointing us towards just getting it together to feel good or to be good. but to disentangle our mind from the source of all suffering. And sometimes that is painful. We have held on to opinions, beliefs, habits, ideas, fantasies, imaginations, each other for so long Letting go is going to hurt. It's going to hurt. You know, I use this image often. If I asked you to squeeze your fist, to, to, to grab something in your fist and to squeeze it, and squeeze it hard, after 30 seconds, your, your, your hand begins to get a little painful and crampy and stiff and achy. And after a minute, it gets really numb and uh, vibrating. And after two minutes, it goes so numb, you don't feel it anymore. And after five minutes, you're not even aware that you've got a hand. It's still grasping, but you're not aware of it. Now imagine that you held that thing for 20, 30, 40 years. And then somebody said, why don't you let go? Right? Just let go. Let go of your opinion. Let go of your thoughts. Let go of your... Uh, idea of yourself, let go of your demands, let go of your expectations, your fantasies, who you think you are, who you hope you aren't. And you, and you start to open your fist. What you would feel would be all of the pain, the cramping, the, the discomfort of letting go. 
the letting go didn't cause the pain. The grasping, the clinging, the hanging on caused the pain. The letting go frees us from the pain. Much of what we experience in practice is the pain of letting go. The pain of letting go. And today, I'm sure, I, I, I know, I've, I've heard it in interviews. There's physical pain, and you know some of that's just getting used to sitting still. And there's some physical and some mental pain, emotional pain, of having to let go. Let go of our habits. Let go of our demands. Let go of our expectations. Finding a way of relating to the difficulties of our practice. Henry Miller has an interesting um, statement about the goal of practice. He says, one's destination is never a place, but rather a new way of looking at things. This body and this mind, this is the place. We're not really going anywhere else. We're working with this, our history, our personal history, our imagination, our our anticipation, our, our aspirations. That's it. This is the game. We're not going to get a new one, at least this lifetime. This is it. How we, la- how we relate to it is the whole practice. How we relate to our body. How we relate to our thoughts. How we relate to our emotions. How we relate to our fears, our joys, our sorrows, our shames, our humiliations. It's difficult. It's difficult to open because we see our habits. And these habits have been codified in the Buddhist teachings into these these things called the hindrances. The qualities of mind that obscure being present, that hinder being awake, that hide the present moment from us. We get lost in a fantasy of some desire, desiring some future, some, some just wanting things to be different than the way they are. And that can be wanting the bell to ring before it does in the sitting. It can be wanting uh, something special to eat, or wanting, for those of you on eight precepts, just wanting something to eat. <laughs> you know, it's just... And breakfast the last few mornings, wanting more to eat. We get caught in desire. We get caught in all forms of aversion, resistance, judgment, fear, denial, uh, anger, irritation, uh, depression, despair, hopelessness, pushing away from experience. Or we get caught in doubt. You know, what am I doing? Why? Why did I come? What am I doing? Am I doing this right? What am I supposed to do now? I'm quiet. I'm still. I'm I'm with the breath. Now what? That's it. (laughs) There's nothing else to be done. And yet the mind's not satisfied with that. It's it's just kind of churning. It's just kind of... 
I was talking to someone in an interview today, and they said, you know, the mind just wants to make questions. Just wants to. It gets so happy when it comes up with a question that it can ask. <laughs> you know, a as a way of avoiding the present moment. It's just it's a habit. These five hindrances that I'm sure you're all familiar with, sleepiness or restlessness, desire or aversion, and doubt. They are so common. We've seen them all today, most of us. They, they come. Let's not, let's not deny it. We all experience all the hindrances some of the time. I don't believe there's anyone in the room that is totally free of any of the hindrances all the time. Is there? <laughs> Maybe you haven't seen some yet, but... What are they? Why, how do they work? It's like, you know, the Buddha said, the mind is radiant and pure. The mind is radiant and pure. It knows things. It is because of visiting forces known as defilements that we suffer. Visiting forces. The sleepiness you've been experiencing, the restlessness, the desire, the aversion, the doubt. They're just visitors to the mind. They aren't. It's not their home. They're just visiting. And when they appear, they appear as a filter over the mind. And we see the present moment through colored lenses. We see things in a distorted way. For example, when the mind is filled with desire, wanting, it causes the objects that we see, whether it's people, or food, or sunsets, to be entirely good. We don't see what's bad about that. We can't see the unpleasant aspect of anything when the mind is filled with desire. All we see is the goodness, the, the, the pleasantness of it. There may be plenty that's unpleasant about it, but when desire is in the mind, we are unable. Desire confuses the mind so that it cannot see the unpleasantness. It's not a fault of yours. It's not, it's, it's not a personal fault or personal limitation that when desires in your mind, you can't see the unpleasantness and you just go pursue it, at least in your mind. Aversion is just the opposite. When aversion arises in the mind, as it will due to deep condition, deep conditioning, a powerful habit, when aversion arises in the mind, what we see, we notice the unpleasantness of it. We get irritated, we get depressed, we get fearful, we get anxious. We can't, we can't help it, we can't prevent it. That's the nature of aversion in the mind. This is its, uh, what, what in Pali is called, its sabhava. The person, the, the, the kind of the unique personal flavor of aversion. Unpleasant. Or the unique uh, personal flavor, the sabhava of desire. What's that feel like? What does it feel like in the body? What does it do to the mind? These filters in the mind 
of these of these hindrances are deeply conditioned in the past and because they're conditioned they can be deconditioned if they were permanent residents of the mind if they were somehow fixed entities we could never do anything about them but they're only there due to the buildup of habit if we cease and desist that habit they wither ultimately to dry up and and be uprooted All of these hindrances arise accompanied by restlessness. Now, you've seen restlessness today. The the, the busyness of the mind, the anxiousness of the mind, the feeling of tumbling forward or rushing. Here, rushing. Did anybody rush today? You know, you got to rush to meal. Maybe you got to rush to the toilet. You got to rush to get to the hall on time. We don't need to rush here. And yet, it's such a powerful habit in our mind that it comes up, we get caught in it, and we start acting it out. We we kind of indulge in it, we act it out. One of the the great um, benefits of a retreat like this is we set the container of a retreat. We give you a very simple schedule. We ask you to be silent uh, and and to um, just follow the schedule. It sounds really simple. I mean, I know it's demanding. It, it is demanding. But the format of retreat is actually quite refined. It's designed to do a couple of things. And one of them is it's designed to uh, contain energy. So we ask you not to act out your trips, your hindrances, your desires and aversions and restlessness and anxieties and not to act them out, but to pay attention. In the, act, in the not acting out, in the exercising restraint, it takes a lot of effort. It takes a lot of energy not to act out habitual patterns. You just have to... You know, you just have to let it be. That takes a lot of energy. But that energy that you don't expend, that you don't dissipate in acting it out, is then available for seeing clearly. If you don't act it out, where's all that energy going to go? You're not dissipating it. You're not acting it out. You're not speaking. You're not moving. You're not doing anything. It's just sitting there in the mind. It takes, that's the energy it takes to cut through attachment. That's the energy it takes to let go. All the energy that we contain, that we, that we, that we acquire through exercising skillful or, or wise restraint. That's the energy that's needed. And so it gets pretty intense. You know, you're sitting still, you're walking slow, you're, you're just paying attention. It gets intense. You know, as simple, as, as, as unintense as it can be, it still gets intense. The body gets really intense, painfully intense. The mind gets sharp, it gets reactive, it gets vividly intense. 
because there's so much energy staying in, looking within. When we act out our habits, our patterns, our hindrances, we dissipate, we leak the energy. Now, you know what? I'm going to give you a secret. A secret that all teachers of retreats know, and they rarely tell their students. Ready? Everybody leaks energy. You have to. It is so intense that we all find ways to kind of let off a little steam, let off a little, get a little relief. But that's okay. Just acknowledge that to yourself. Acknowledge when you leak energy, when you act out something, when you just kind of let it go. That's a leak. Acknowledge it. Acknowledge it. Kind of bring, bring the container back. You know, In time, you'll be able to handle the energy. It's like building up your capacity to hold the energy of awareness, to, 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 to uh, allow the energy of freedom in your mind, to not buy into habits, unconscious habits. That's what that's the energy it takes. Because when you're not acting out, the energy stays here. But we're letting go, and all that energy that was holding on, holding on, holding on, is now right here. It's not going anywhere. It's just seeing things clearly. One suggestion in, 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 in practice. Slow down. Most of you are going pretty slow. But by going slow, we notice more. The more we notice, the more energy accumulates in the mind. A second helpful uh, suggestion for practice is to get curious, to really look at the familiar things we do every day, bathing, getting dressed, eating, standing, sitting, going to the toilet. I mean, these are the events of the day, the highlights. I mean, uh, you know, there's a new sunset every day, I agree, but... uh, You know, there's 25 more days to retreat. You're going to get up. You're going to eat two meals each day. That's 50 meals. You know, that's going to get pretty boring if you don't pay attention. You're going to go to the toilet a lot. You know, I mean, <laughs> several times. You know, can we bring that spirit of First time ever. Let me. What's going on here? Can I really be present with whatever it is you got to do? Many of you have heard this uh, from Albert Einstein. He says, "I think that people generally overestimate me, 
but I don't consider myself superior or different from anyone else. I'm not more gifted than anyone else. I am just more curious and maybe more patient. Curious. Maybe more patient. Krishnamurti said, I do yoga every day, but I've never made a habit of it. (laughs) I do yoga every day, but I've never made a habit of it. Can we eat each meal and not make a habit of it? Can we come and sit five, six, seven times a day and not make a habit of it? That's, That's what the practice is asking us. Can we awaken, bring that freshness of mind each moment. Recognizing, making conscious, really, the unconscious habits of the mind. The willingness we have to engage in dullness. You know, just kind of cruising. Just cruising along, not really looking too close, don't want to see anything that's a not expected. Or restlessness. Desire. You know, imagining something better. Wow, how many hours did we spend today hoping, imagining that the fourth day or the fifth day of the retreat is going to be better? <laughs> hoping, at least. It might not. All that time, gone, lost, lost in some habit of mind, fantasizing something, some future, some better future. When we recognize the habits of mind, the patterns of mind, we can exercise a little restraint, not act them out so blindly, contain the energy, build the energy. One support for doing that for exercising restraint, is to understand that there's really nothing wrong with the hindrances. They are as fair a game in practice as bliss, as joy, as love, as peace, whatever. They are as useful really, for awakening, is anything else you'll ever come across. Because we can be mindful of them. We can be aware of them. In the moment of indulging, we're gone. But in the next moment, we can notice. And that's the power of of awareness, training, is we see, and in the seeing, we step back. We disentangle a little bit, just right then. Disentangle. And we can watch, you know, as, as uh, Phil was reminding me at the dinner table. You know, Joseph uses the image of cruising down the interstate of life. Boom. And there's an exit. Oh, come play with me. And you say, well, I don't think I'll take that exit. And you see these thoughts come by, you know, like, oh, what the... Why don't you play with this thought for a while? You know, and you, you can see it. It's just like, uh, I think I better let that one go. 
or you're, you're, just, you're just with the breath, and anything is more interesting than the breath. <laughs> I mean, how boring can you get? Right? What's more interesting than the breath? If you look at it, you'll see it's a distraction. It's a desire, it's a version, it's a fantasy, it's just restlessness. It's just the inability to just balance on that point of the present moment. Or I should say, really, it's not the inability, it's the unwillingness. The unwillingness to be content with just this. Nothing is out of bounds in this practice. Whatever you experience is okay. It's okay to experience whatever you experience. Now, I know you might not be able to talk about it. You might be ashamed to, or you might uh, be afraid to, but really, it's okay. Whatever you experience is okay to be aware of, to acknowledge to yourself, this is the way it is right now for me. With that understanding, a corollary of that understanding is it doesn't pay to judge your practice. When I went to Burma, I'd been doing retreats for 10 years, and then I got an intense urgency to practice more. I went to Burma and I was practicing with Saito Upandita. And in this center where I went, you start uh, with four hours of sleep a night, and that's it. And they're really strict, you know, from 11 at night till 3 in the morning, you can sleep. And then the bells ring, and you've got to get up and start practicing. Hour sits, hour walks, all of them. Well, it's difficult, you know, I mean, if you're used to six or eight hours of sleep, it's really tough getting just four. And, and being alert for the rest of the day. But we had to report to Upandita every day at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and I was usually listed first. I guess maybe it was alphabetical or something. I'm not sure. But 2 o'clock I had to be there and tell him what was going on in my practice. And, uh, you know, you go in and you have a, you know, what did you notice about the breath? What did you notice about the lifting, moving, placing? Okay, what else did you notice? What did you do with it? Okay. So... You know, what can you say about the breath? <laughs> I mean, how, 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 how long does it take? So you go in, you tell them about the breath, you know, and then the next day you tell them the same thing. Well, there was the breath. It was like this and it was like that. And then after four or five days, it's starting to sound pretty boring. So you really look for something unique, something <laughs> subtle, something different, you know, and uh, after another three or four days, you've exhausted all that. And then the sign went up on Upandita's door. <clears throat> when you come to report, don't say anything you've ever said before. <laughs> wow, did that set the mind in a spin. Things were going along great for about two weeks. And, you know, I could see, you know, getting a little better, a little more energy, a little more continuity, a little more subtlety of noticing. And then at around two weeks, one day, my practice was shot. I mean, it was just gonzo. I couldn't, I couldn't remember to find the breath, and when I did, I couldn't find it. I mean, I could, 
You know, it was bad. It was like, wow, I, I couldn't, nothing. The mind was chaos. It was so frustrating. It was just a mess. I couldn't sit. Unbelievably restless. Well, two o'clock came around. I had to go report to Pandita. Now, up till this time, I've been reporting all good things. And I went to the door, and I opened the door, and I walked in. I just stuck my head in. I said, Dupandita, <clears throat> he was just sitting in his chair over there. I, said, um, I, I don't want to report today. I'll, I'll come back tomorrow. He says, hmm? you know, he's just like, what do you mean you're not going to report today? <laughs> he didn't say it, but that's what he meant. So I said, and the translator said, come in, come in, come in. So I went in, and I said, ah, practice is not going so good today. I don't think I want to report I said, what do you mean, practice not going so good today? And then, uncharacteristically for Upandita, he got really, wow, really soft, really like your most favorite uncle. <laughs> oh, oh, come here, tell me what's going on. You know, like, you mean your practice is not going good today? Tell me about it. You know, maybe we can help you get through it. So I said, oh, okay. Well, I just told him. I said, terrible. My practice is shot. I don't know what happened. You know, I'm going downhill. It's, somebody pulled the plug. <laughs> As I was telling him my horrible practice, he just lit up. He was so happy. He just, he just got a big grin. At the end of my horrible report, he said, you know, sometimes when yogis come to report and they think they're doing really good, the teacher knows. So-so. But other times when yogis come in and report and they think they're doing really bad, it really makes the teacher happy because they know they're doing good. <laughs> <laughs> and this isn't even the Zen tradition. So, <laughs> I got a powerful teaching right then. Don't judge your practice. What you think is going on is probably not. We cannot judge the quality of our practice by how easeful, or how pleasant, or how familiar, or how unique it seems. It has nothing to do with the quality of your practice. And yet, so often, we buy into the judgment. We're experiencing pain in the body, or challenging stuff in the mind, and we think, my practice is not good. I got to get rid of this and get calm again and get continuous with the breath. Not so. Not so, really. Discovering these hindrances, discovering the frustration, discovering the anger, discovering the irritation, discovering the endless desire, discovering the restlessness. Good practice. Why? because we're beginning to uncover, we're beginning to make conscious these habitual tendencies of mind. We're seeing them. If we see them, we can do something about them. If we don't see them, we can be sure they're operating underground, jerking us around, having their day, having their say, and we're just completely unaware of them. And so when we begin to open to them and see them, it's not pleasant, as we know. It's not pleasant. But that's good practice. 
be careful not to judge your practice. Not by how pleasant or unpleasant, not by how familiar or unfamiliar, not by how intense or how subtle, but rather ask yourself, are you knowing this moment clearly? Are you willing to feel what's actually going on right now? Are you approaching this behavior habitually, or is it as if it's the first time? Even if it's familiar. Are you looking for something familiar, or are you open to the unknown? Are you trying to get rid of something, or are you willing to experience it? When I say there's no off-limits, there's no out-of-bounds in practice, anything is to be acknowledged, can be acknowledged, and then we can begin to work with it. All that we experience is the Dhamma, pleasant or unpleasant, familiar or not, intense or subtle, it's all the Dhamma, the truth, the way things are. Remember, everything is workable. Everything is workable. No matter what you're experiencing, no matter how difficult it may seem in this moment, it's workable. It's the place for establishing attention, a mindfulness, awareness. Mind by nature is radiant and pure, the Buddha said. It is shining. It is because of visiting forces known as defilements that we suffer. If you're suffering, when you suffer, know that you're being visited by one of these forces. If you're struggling with your practice, recognize one of these forces is present in your mind. Notice which one. Work with it. You know, if you're looking to find the key to the universe, I have some bad news and some good news. Bad news is, there is no key to the universe. The good news is, the door's been left unlocked. <laughs> it's, it's all there. It's all here. You know? The key, if there is one, is just attention noticing and being willing to acknowledge this is the way it is right now. One of the great wise men of the last century in the Hindu tradition was Nisargadatta Maharaj. And he said, all that you need on this path of awakening, all that you need is already within you. Only you must approach yourself with reverence and love. Self-hatred, self-distrust are grievous errors. Your constant flight from pain and search for pleasure 
is a sign of love you bear for yourself. All I plead with you is this. Make love of yourself perfect. Deny yourself nothing. Give yourself infinity and eternity and discover that you do not need them for you are beyond them. So let's sit for a moment and let the words quiet down. Wang Po, a Chinese Zen master of the first century, said this of the pure mind. This pure mind, which is the source of all things, shines forever with the radiance of its own perfection. Your true nature is not lost in moments of delusion, nor is it gained at the moment of enlightenment. It was never born and can never die. It shines through the whole universe, filling emptiness at one with emptiness. It is without time or space. It has no passions, no actions, no ignorance or knowledge. This pure mind is all-pervading. It's radiant beauty. It is self-existent. It's uncreated. It is a jewel beyond all price. Thank you for listening to the Dharma.